once again, good morning. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad you're beginning the series with us because uh, this is kind of a lead up to Easter, as Dan was saying earlier. You know, for those of you who aren't maybe part of a traditional church or haven't done high church before, Christians typically uh, spend some weeks before Easter kind of ramping up. They kind of get their minds and their hearts in, a, in, in an attitude of, of readiness for that great moment in Easter when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So this series, we're talking all about Jesus. It's got a long uh, tradition associated with it, so I kind of hope you get into it with me as we look at the person of Jesus and preparing ourselves for Easter coming up at the end of the month. So let's look at who is Jesus. Now, it's all started, really. This question started uh, one day, a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. We're talking about uh, a meeting of Jesus and his 12 disciples in northern Palestine uh, near a city called Caesarea Philippi. And on that day... This young guy, this 32-year-old itinerant preacher, this traveling teacher guy, uh, carpenter by trade, gathers his young apprentices around, and he asks them the question that we've been asking here this morning, and that really people have been asking about Jesus ever since. And the question is, who do you say that I am? Matthew chapter 16, verse 50. Who do you say that I am? Now, Jesus' young apprentices, his disciples, the now famous 12, had just recounted for Jesus some of the opinions that were swirling about Jesus on the street. Like he had been traveling. He had been traveling all over to Jerusalem a couple times and all over northern Palestine, and he had kind of had a name for himself. And now, what were people saying about him? And so the disciples were, were uh, informing him what the crowds were saying about who he was. And this was their, their answer, Matthew 16, 14. They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. We remember him, right? the wild man who ate locusts and wild honey and baptized people in the Jordan and was killed by Herod the king and, and that guy. Well, some, some think you're him. Like you think, well, are they believing in reincarnation? Well, maybe some, but mostly they probably thought he came in the spirit and the power of, of John the Baptist, like John was a precursor to him or something. Others say Elijah. And some of you know that name from Old Testament. He's the pro prophet who... Uh, who the Bible will say will come back to life and precede the end of days. He will basically be a precursor to the end of history. Then, he says, still others think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jeremiah, uh, we know that name from the Old Testament, from 600 years before Jesus, the suffering servant of God who, who came to predict doom for Jerusalem and for Israel as they get carted off to exile. So these are the, the opinions. I mean, they're just wildly diverse, right? John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, it's all over the map. Who, who do they think that Jesus is? Now, imagine Jesus stood on this stage and this morning asked everybody here the same question. Who do you say that I am? Would he get any less diverse array of answers? Absolutely not. They would be even more diverse, wouldn't they? The answers to the question would just be myriad. There would be thousands and thousands of answers to who are people... What's the word on the street? Who do people say that Jesus is? And so it's been common in our day to essentially make Jesus into some kind of icon or chameleon. And so people paint him in, in so many different ways, as black or white, male or female, straight or gay, socialist, capitalist, pacifist, warrior, Ku Klux Klansman and civil rights agitator, a Republican and a Democrat. I mean, he's just painted all over the map. Jesus has been depicted by people of all different social and political persuasions. He's been adopted by people of almost every faith and some, some from people of no faith at all. For example, Jesus has been the champion of communists in the past. 
who resisted the religious elite and ruling class. Jesus has been adopted as a good rabbi by observant Jews. Jesus has been claimed as a Hindu deity, an avatar of Vishnu. Jesus has been an example for New Agers of what their, their souls can become when they reach enlightenment as Jesus did. Jesus is a prophet in Islam, second only to Muhammad and greatly revered. So it seems like everybody has a claim on Jesus. Jesus is everybody's friend. He's the guy that nobody wants to hate. Everybody wants him playing on their team. Everyone, it seems, has a way uh, of liking him. And, and, and those ways of looking at Jesus are almost as diverse, it seems, as there are people. And this really came home to me, this was 12 years ago now, when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. How many of you saw that movie? Okay, so a lot of you, some of you maybe intentionally didn't go because you knew it would be really rough and very violent, and it was. And so for that reason, in part, there was a lot of debate and emotion that surrounded the movie that depicted Jesus' final hours in rugged detail. Some of the controversy revolved around the R rating. Uh, some of it revolved around the fact that it was allegedly anti-Semitic. Some of the controversy revolved around Mel Gibson, who kind of went insane after the movie came out. And uh, who can forget the evil baby? Remember? <laughs> that was just weird, wasn't it? So it was controversial. It was controversial for, for all these different reasons. But what struck me uh, about the movie was how offended many people got, mostly, not because of all those reasons, allegedly anti-Semitic, the evil baby, and all that kind of stuff. Mostly it was controversial because it didn't jive with a lot of people's personal depiction of Jesus, whether or not it jived with the historical record. That almost didn't seem to matter for people. And you know how I know that? Is after the movie came out, of course it was a lot of scuttlebutt, and so the local paper, the Herald, interviewed people and they came out of the theater and they reported on it and I kept it for my files. And so some of the people um, were interviewed after they came out of the movie said things like this. One person said, I didn't like that movie, that wasn't Jesus. Jesus wasn't about violence and torture, Jesus was about the Sermon on the Mount. Another person said, why be so obsessed about Jesus' death when he lived such a great life? Now, notice, for many, the underlying assumption, it didn't matter to them if the, if the movie was accurate as history. It didn't matter if it matched the best records that we have of his life. It didn't matter. If it didn't match what they wanted Jesus to be about, they didn't like it. Like you can pick and choose, you know, like it's a smorgasbord. And here's the data about Jesus, and I'll take a little of this, and I'll take a little of this, and I'll take a little of this, but I'm going to leave that on the table, and that on the table, and that on the table. Like, like that's a legitimate way to look at Jesus. Well, guess what? That smorgasbord approach to a vision of Jesus has a long history in our country. And it actually begins with the guy you're all familiar with, Thomas Jefferson. Being a deist, what did deists believe? That's what Thomas Jefferson was. He wasn't a Christian. He believed in God, but he believed in a distant watchmaker God. So the God winds up the universe and then lets it go and never touches it again. So in a deist worldview, supernatural things don't happen. There's no such thing as miracles and all that jazz. Okay? So that's a deist. So all the supernatural events and all the supernatural claims that surround Jesus had to be false for Thomas Jefferson. Just they were ruled out of court because of his worldview assumptions. Okay? So what did he do? So he took a New Testament one time and a knife, literally, and cut out all the supernatural elements of Jesus' life. So he created the Jefferson Bible, noticeably thinner than yours, because his Bible had 
no resurrection, no divine stature, no miracles, and none of that stuff. And that's an actual uh, copy there of the Jefferson Bible that you're looking at. You can see what he did. Like with an X-Acto knife, he just cut out portions. And what's interesting is, like it or not, from that seminal moment of American history, you can say whatever you wanted to say about Jesus. You could kind of reinvent him however you wanted. The record didn't really matter. Jesus became an icon, someone nobody needed to hate or no, nobody needed to see that they couldn't agree with him. He could just be more infinitely to be on your team. He could just be on your team. Now, let's go back then to that original moment in Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago. Okay, here's a meeting between Jesus and his disciples. There's no crowds around. It's Jesus and his 12 buddies. So after they had kind of answered the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And they talked about what everyone else was saying. Jesus turns his gaze on them, his, the 12, and he says this in Matthew 16, 15. He says, okay, but what about you? So there was a moment where he said, okay, now I'm not talking about those guys. I'm not talking about the crowds. I'm not talking about those people who believe anything. Those people who believe nothing. I'm not talking about the gullible. I'm not talking about the cynics. I'm not talking about the people who've heard about me third hand from your aunt or uncle, Eb, or whatever. I'm not talking about those people. Now I'm talking to you. I'm looking at you, man. I'm talking about you guys who have seen me walk and talk and eat and sleep and pray. I'm talking about you guys who have walked with me for years. And we've been traveling buddies on the road together. Who do you say that I am? Does the crowds answer? What do you say? And this is where Peter says something that will start the whole flow of Christian history. Right here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, Peter says. The son of the living God. This is awesome. And you may not realize just how awesome it is because when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, and now he has a name, Jesus Christ, and you think like he maybe gave him a surname or something, like Jesus Thompson, Jesus Johnson, Jesus Tejada, or something like that, right? Like, Jesus needed a last name. We couldn't just call him Jesus, right? So let's, let's give him a last name. So Peter gave him a last name. Thank you, Peter. No. Christ is not a last name. Christ is not a surname. Understand, AC3, Christ is a title. It's a Greek word. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the Greek version of a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which is where we get our word for Messiah. Now, what does Messiah mean? Messiah also has a rendering in the Hebrew. It means literally the anointed one, the anointed one. So when Peter is saying that Jesus is the Christ, he is invoking this gigantic biblical idea. And he's placing all the weight of it on the head of a man that he knew, living, breathing, sitting just a few feet from him and saying, you are the Christ. I mean, this is an awesome thing for one person to say about another person. He is saying, Jesus, you are the long-awaited liberator of our people. You are the anointed one. You are the one that the entire scripture, Genesis to Malachi to that point, has been looking forward to. You're the fulcrum of history. You are the Christ. I mean, this is awesome. That's what you need to understand. When you hear him say, you are the Christ, and that's what you need to hear him say. And what does this anointed one mean? What does that refer to? That also has great baggage with it and a tremendous weight. From ancient times, the Jews would take oil and they'd pour it on the heads to commission three different kinds of people. That was what they did. That's what anoint means. They would pour oil 
on somebody's head to anoint them uh, in special ways. The three kinds of people that the Jews would anoint were prophets, priests, and kings. So when Peter is calling Jesus the anointed one, Mashiach, the Christ, he's saying, you're the one who is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. You're the king of kings. You're the prophet of prophets, and you're the, um, uh, the king of kings and the, and the priest of priests. When, when Peter, uh, this devout Jew, calls Jesus Christ, he knew very well what a radical thing was that he was saying. Now, here's what's fascinating. How does Jesus respond? Because Jesus doesn't put the word Christ in Peter's mouth, right? It just comes out of him. So how does Jesus respond? Is he tepid? Does he resist? Does he backpedal? Here's what he says. Next verse, Matthew 16, 17. Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. No human revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. So the bottom line is Jesus is thrilled that he made this, uh, that, he, that he revealed that, that he, this is his view of Jesus because he knows in this moment, finally, now, Peter gets it. Peter gets it. I mean, he got it in a way that the casual observers didn't get it and couldn't get it. He, only, he got it in a way that only could be finally revealed to him from God that this person sitting in front of him is, in fact, the Christ. So when Peter said, you are the Christ, the anointed one, he was saying to Jesus, I get it. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the anointed priest. And what do priests do? Priests put people back in touch with God, right? They offer sacrifice, this go-between. You are the priest, and you're going to offer the ultimate sacrifice to put people back in touch with God. He says, when, you, when he says, you're the anointed one, Jesus, he's saying, you're the anointed prophet who will speak for God and ultimately show us God. When he says, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, he's saying, you are the king, and that means you're the king of kings. You're going to be the king of God's people and the king of God's land. I mean, this is a fantastic thing that, that, that Peter is saying here, and Jesus is thrilled. Now, that matters, because a lot of people kind of go around with this idea today that Jesus would just roll over in his grave if he knew that he had been exalted to such a high position as he has been exalted in Christendom, to divine status, one with the Father. I mean, people just say, are you kidding me? The real Jesus would just go crazy if he knew people were worshiping him today. Are you kidding me? But friends, this is the earliest record we have. All three of the synoptic gospels have it, including the Gospel of Mark, which is the earliest to go on record. And in all of them, Peter calls Jesus the Messiah. And in all of them, Jesus is thrilled with this response. This is a great moment for preemptive retraction. I mean, if Jesus was really going to roll over in his, dead, in his grave someday at the thought of him being deified, this was the moment he could have stopped that train from leaving the station. This is where he could have said, whoa, Christ, anointed one, are you kidding me? Whoa, whoo, I might have oversold myself there. I, whoa, I just back up, guys, I'm just like you. No, no, he says, Peter, you are blessed. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's thrilled that Peter gets who he is. Because we find it in the earliest of, of records about Jesus' life, we know then that it's not some, some deluded, pious follower of Jesus 100 years later or 200 years later that somehow deified him and put the Christ title on him way after the fact. Uh-uh. No, it happened in Jesus' own lifetime. W within the lifetime of Jesus, within the lifetime of still living eyewitnesses, this is just how 
Jesus saw himself. It's how he wants you to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? This is how he wants you to answer the question. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the world knew him as Jesus, born in Nazareth, so Jesus of Nazareth. And the disciples who lived with him, walked with him, talked with him, eventually evolved their view to say, no, this is Jesus the Christ. And that's just the start. I mean, that's just one title. Let's look at the other ones. I mean, uh, Peter used the other one, Son of God. And then there was Son of Man, which was basically Jesus' favorite title for himself. Let's look at those two titles, and what are they communicating? And again, it's been suggested by cynics and skeptics that who really want to, to make Jesus a merely human uh, teacher, cynic sage, that really this Son of God title, you can't really deny that he appropriated the title because the, the historical evidence is too overwhelming that he did. So then they will say that perhaps he used the Son of God title in the same way that we would say that you're a Son of God, that you were made in the image of God, that you were made for a relationship with God, and that's something that all Christians can buy into. You're a son or a daughter of God. And that, that's maybe the way he was using it about himself. I'm a son of God like you're a son of God or like you're a daughter of God. No, that can't be the way he's using it. He's using it as a unique, uh, claiming a unique title for himself because he's saying he's of the same stuff as God. He will later say that he is the only begotten son of God. And that word begotten just really matters. It's such a deep and rich word because it delineates what God begets from what God makes. Think about it in your own life. What you make is not like you. You make a chair. You make a car. You make a building. You make stuff that's not like you, but you beget a son. And so what you beget is like you. It's of the same stuff as you. When Jesus says, I am the son of God, he says, I am the same stuff as the father. I mean, that's a, just a profound thing. And just in case we're wondering uh, further, we can just ask ourselves, how did the people around him take it when he used the, the title Son of God? How did they understand? Did they understand it in that generic sense that we're all sons and daughters of God? Or did they understand him to be saying something completely unique and calling something uh, completely unique for himself? Well, at his trial, it's very interesting because at his trial, he used the term Son of God and uh, they were picking up what he was laying down because the high priest at that point uh, knew that he wasn't claiming that we're all sons of God and that's what he meant about himself. No, they knew he meant to make himself equal with God by using the title, and so they killed him. By the way, similarly with Son of Man, let's go to that one because Son of Man sounds very much like perhaps he's claiming just to be a mere mortal. Like, well, what else could that mean, Son of Man? And by the way, that is what, again, some cynics and skeptical scholars have suggested, that, that his use of the phrase, son of man, his absolute favorite title for himself, is saying how frail he is, how human he is. Basically, he says, son of man, to, to say, I'm mortal just like you. But could that be what he means? Well, unfortunately, though, people who say this are overlooking or they're ignorant of the most fundamental thing we know about Jesus, and that's that he was Jewish. And we've really kind of recovered that in the last 50 years in New Testament scholarship, that really the way to understand Jesus is not in terms of sort of a Greek context, but in terms of a Jewish context. And in a Jewish context, when someone evokes the phrase son of man, the Jewish audience could not have heard that and not think immediately about Daniel. Because here's Daniel, 500 years before Jesus, invoking the phrase son of man that was embedded in the Jewish mind as a title for Messiah. I'll read you the entire prophetic 
uh, moment. Here's uh, what Daniel says, Daniel chapter 7. In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is 500 years old by the time Jesus shows up. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him, this son of man figure. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So from Jesus' own lips, every time he says the son of man, to refer to himself, he's saying a boatload. What he's claiming is this messianic title. This guy, and as you can see, this messianic figure, this character, is, is exalted. And all nations worship him, and he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days. He is one with the Father in some mystical and beautiful sense. And Jesus saying, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. That's what son of man means. And just in case, again, you think that maybe we're misunderstanding it, we've got to ask, how did the people in the original context take it when he used the title Son of Man? How did they understand it? Because that is a huge insight for us. Well, they were picking up what he was laying down. At his trial, he's asked specifically, are you a king? And what do you think he says to that? He says, yes, I'm a king. And then he, he one-ups them. He says, not only am I I'm a king, not only am I a king, but in the future, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I mean, you can't mistake it now, right? I mean, now it's just clear. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And what did they do in response to that? When he said this, when he lays that out there, well, they kind of go nuts. I mean, they, uh, the chief priest tore his robe. They covered their ears. They started yelling and screaming. Imagine, a, you know, a bunch of guys in big hats, the judges of, of the nation of, of, of Israel, and, and they hear him say, you're going to see me in the future coming on the clouds of heaven and uh, one with the mighty one in heaven. And they've never heard such blasphemy. They've never heard the audacity of a person to say this. And so they go kind of crazy. Uh, this is clearly not a young man saying, hey, just, you know, when I say son of man, I mean I'm just human and mortal and fallible like everybody else. No. So they go nuts. They realize that he was claiming to be God, and that was blasphemy, and that was worthy of death, and they killed him. So they killed him. So it's not a stretch at all to say that Jesus was not crucified because of what he did. Like, who's going to crucify a guy for going around healing people and saying, hey, you should be nice to each other? No, that, that doesn't generally get people killed, right? But if you ruffle the religious feathers of the establishment and you utter this kind of unbelievable heresy, that, that could get you killed. And that did get him killed. Jesus was killed because of who he said he was. He said he was the Christ. He said he was the Son of God. And he said he was the Son of Man. And that's what the best records about Jesus' life tell us. And that means, friends, that who he said he was, was God. He was one with the Father. And I haven't even gotten into here what the disciples said about him. We haven't even gotten into what, what Peter will say later in, his, later in his letters, what Paul will say later in his letters, what John will say in his gospel in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, we don't even get into that where it gets, like, super explicit. We're just talking about what Jesus is inferring by these titles. 
But not only by these titles, what he infers by what he does. Go back to the video you saw earlier. The video is uh, depicting the event that happened in Mark chapter 2, where the paralytic is healed. But not only is he healed, Jesus says, Son, I forgive your sin. Now that's a fantastic thing. And you say, no, it's not. That's no big deal. Forgive sins. I, I forgive people all the time. So what we're supposed to do, right? But no, no, no. Understand this is totally different. Jesus is forgiving this man's sins as he has sinned against everybody else, not the sins that he committed against Jesus. He says, I'm forgiving your sin. I mean, it's one thing to say, I forgive your sins and you, 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 you sin against me. But what if I say, I'm going to forgive all the other sins that you've committed against everybody else? I, I have the authority to forgive all those sins. What would you assume about me? You'd assume wicked megalomania and you'd want to lock me up, probably. Put a straitjacket on that guy because he thinks he's, say it, God. He thinks he's God. And that's exactly what they said to him, Mark chapter 2. Only God can forgive sins. So friends, he doesn't want you to miss it. And this idea that he's just a nice guy, He's just a great teacher. He kind of hasn't left that one open to you just because of the way he claims these titles and these divine prerogatives for himself. But these days, people, that doesn't stop them from trying. These days, we're desperately trying to separate the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. The Da Vinci Code books, Dan Brown is basically on a, on a warpath to try to convince you that the Jesus of history is something different than the Christ of faith, that this guy is just a merely human, cynic sage. He married Mary Magdalene and spawned a race of kings uh, that uh, lived in secret in France. Or, you know, just, it's, a, it's a wild and wonderful story. He's basically trying to get you to divorce the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. Not the only one, the Jesus Seminar. You're going to see them again, mark my words, in another Newsweek article or another Time article that was going to lead up to Easter because we're going to get our obligatory picture of Jesus on the face of Time magazine leading up to Easter and somebody from the Jesus Seminar is going to be interviewed, and they're going to tell you that the Jesus of history is not the Christ of faith. And the Jesus, Seminar, the Jesus Seminar is going to tell you that all these things that are ascribed to Jesus are false. That Jesus said that he would end history, that his death was a substitute for human sin, that he claimed to be the Messiah, that he was raised from the dead, that he was virgin-born, that he performed miracles, that he claimed to be the Son of God. All that, they're saying, is not the Jesus of history. That's just the Christ of faith. Now, where do they come up with that? Where did they get that idea? Number one, they got it from their materialistic, that is, they don't believe miracles can happen, their materialistic presumptions that they just bring it to the text. And just like Thomas Jefferson, cut that part out, cut that part out, cut that part out. Also, they use some other gospels and the secret gospels, you might have heard of these, and we're going to examine those next week and see if there's any veracity to those, any reliability to those. Should we use those alongside the biblical Gospels to flesh out our picture of Jesus? That's next week's topic. You don't want to miss it. But they look at Jesus as this uh, non-divine, uh, non-miracle working, merely human guy. And what are they left with? They're left with this sort of cynic sage, merely human, traveling preacher and teacher, teaching love and harmony and equality and tolerance, and depending on the day, a little Eastern mysticism thrown in there for good measure. That's the Jesus they're left with. Dr. Douglas Grotheis of um, Denver Seminary, he's talking about the Jesus Seminar at one point, and he's noting their scholarship and how really bad it is. And he says, in light of this innocuous identity for Jesus that the Jesus Seminar has come up with, one must ask how such a Jesus could have sparked enough controversy for anyone to nail him to a Roman cross. 
And yet even the most liberal scholars admit that Jesus was crucified, and ancient non-Christian sources attest to this as well. How, how could the Jesus they've come up with ever get himself killed? How could he ever done that? The most ironic thing about the Jesus Seminar is what their founder, Robert Funks, once said. He said, beware of finding a Jesus entirely congenial to you. Why is that ironic? Because the Jesus that the Jesus Seminar has come up with looks just like the Jesus Seminar. In other words, it looks like all their sociopolitical views, all their grander values, all their worldview assumptions are all inside the Jesus that they've magically come up with. But that's still good advice, friends, even for you if you're a devoted follower of Jesus. Beware of a Jesus that is, you are entirely congenial to, because that probably means you aren't listening to the whole record. If there's not some part of Jesus that doesn't ruffle your feathers or rattle your cage or disturb your values, I, I, I just seriously question whether you're reading the New Testament. Because Jesus rattles my cage all the time, and I've been following him for near 40 years. So beware of Jesus that's entirely congenial to you. He's on my side. He agrees with all my political positions. Right? Beware. Beware. Now look, my seeking friend, if you want to have your own personal Jesus, as the song was sung at the beginning of the service, if you want to just have your own personal Jesus, fine. Let's not pretend that this has anything to do with the real Jesus. Your own personal Jesus has nothing to do with the Jesus of history. In the final analysis, if Jesus lived, and that's still an open question for some people, we're going to dive into that and extend it. I hope you stay. We're going to ask the question, how can we know that Jesus really even existed? But if Jesus did exist, he lived in a specific location, and let's just agree that he weighed so and so many pounds, and he stood so and so many inches tall, and he spoke a certain language, and he claimed certain things for his identity. He cannot be one size fits all. He ruffled feathers. He said things you probably don't agree with or find hard to swallow. Our job is not to say, well, there's so many opinions. Who can ever know? I'm just going to think of him the way I want to think of him. He didn't leave that open to you, not if you're being intellectually honest. Our job then is to look at which image of Jesus is the most reliable, which one faithfully reflects what he actually said about himself based on the evidence, and we're going to really dive into that next week. And then you make your decision about Jesus. Then you make your decision about him. Now, friends, it's not a fluke that, that in our current environment, people are coming up with a million different views of who Jesus is. Because we live in an era of religious pluralism. And that means that there's a million different religions staring you in the face. There's, uh, you know, Muslims in the school, or Hindus, or Buddhists, or, you know, 56 different versions of Christian, or even agnostics, or atheists, or whatever. Millions of different worldviews. And the worst thing you can be in this sort of mix of worldviews is exclusive. That's like the cardinal sin in a pluralistic environment is to say, I have unique access to truth. Because, well, now you're superior. Now you're arrogant. Now you're the person who's so special, right? But understand something, friends. It can't be helped if Jesus was who he said he was. It can't be helped if Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God and son of man of Daniel's prophetic vision. He, he is divine, he represents the Father to us, and he gives us unique access to God, the thing that all religions are looking for. And clearly, it's a unique access 
because he is God. He's not just saying, I show you the way to God. I, I'm revealing some portion of God. I'm, I'm, I, I, I know God's mind. He's saying, I and the Father are one. And I get it. It's unpopular. But just for that reason, that it's unpopular for Jesus to say that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, he is not for that reason not the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, that claim is not made false just because you don't like it. He may very well be. And that, isn't that what the song was saying? I mean, what, what if you're wrong? I mean, it might be. It might be he's just another nice guy. It might be that he's just another nice guy. But what if you're wrong? What does the evidence say? And as you make up your mind about that, here's something really interesting. In this kind of world that we have, you know, where there's all these different sort of religious uh, options in front of you, where we like to blend all faiths into one and make sure that we think that no religious truth claims are any different than any other. Well, that's the world that Jesus lived in. He lived in a world like that, a pluralistic, pantheistic world. A world where there was all sorts of gods and all sorts of ways to access divinity and all sorts of religious options. In fact, in the town of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter makes his great confession, guess what? The region was known as the birthplace of Pan, and I'm showing you a Pan, the Pan temple that they've unearthed there in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is having his conversation with his, with his disciples, I don't know, maybe a stone's throw away from that, from that temple. The temple of the god Pan, the god of fertility, worshipped in that area, Caesarea Philippi. Oh, by the way, in that area, Caesarea was filled with temples of many pagan gods, not just Pan. And the town itself was named after who? Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar. And Caesar was another god that you could worship in your pantheon of gods. Friends, they knew about religious pluralism. They knew about the many ways idea. And it's in that context of religious pluralism that Jesus sits his disciples down and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, in the world of many options, in many ways, in the world of the relative, the absolute, Now, do you believe that? Are you going to go with Peter on that? Jesus went with Peter on that. He said, blessed are you. Are you going to go with Peter on that? Because if you are, nothing can be the same after that. Nothing in your life can be the same. You claim Jesus, you and 70% of America. You claim Jesus, now nothing can be the same. Jesus would look at his disciples one day and say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? If Jesus is who he said he was, and you say, snappy salute, I'm on your team, Jesus. Instead of trying to get Jesus to be on your team, you say to Jesus, I'm on your team. And when you do that, it changes everything. I mean, now your life is surrendered to him in mastership in a brand new way. He is Master Jesus. He's Lord. And what he says goes. And he gets from you, his loving child, is a snappy salute. I mean, you can grumble and grouse and complain, but devoted followers of Jesus say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where am I going to go to find eternal life except through you? So I'm not leaving you. I'm doing what you say. I'm following your lead. As much as it ruffles my feathers, as much as it rankles me, as much as it calls me to deny myself and pick up my cross daily and follow you, and that turns my whole world upside down, Jesus, I mean, what else am I going to do? You're the son of God. And you 
given me unique access point to God. There is a grace in your name that I can find in no other name under heaven. And so, Jesus, you have that answer. So, friends, uh, next week we're going to look at the other answers to the question, who is Jesus? There's the New Testament answer. And there's every other answer. And we're going to ask which one of these is most believable. I hope you join me then. But now let's close in prayer. God, uh, we have this uh, remarkable fork in the road that it's placed in front of us by Brother Peter. So I'm asking for open hearts today, and I'm asking, Lord, for the courage of open minds and honest uh, intellectual pursuers, investigators, and seekers to consider afresh and again who you said you were and to align ourselves with truth, whether that makes us uncomfortable or not. And having come under your leadership, may we experience all the beauty of your grace. For the Jesus who said he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, also said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Lord, we believe that because you are who you said you are, you have the power to give us rest. If you are just another guy, well, you don't have that power. But being the Son of God, you do. We invoke now these promises for our personal situation and pray that we would be aligned to you, the giver and author of life. In Jesus' powerful name we pray.